my wife's one of my wife's grandmothers, uh -huh. uh, and then we've had other people in and out of the house all day who are local Argentinian friends. Right. So you got so there's an Argentinian community, if you will, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, people yeah, pretty thriving one. Um, and, there's the, and once yeah. I got involved, once I met my wife 12 years ago, I right. suddenly realized just how big it is. And yeah. yeah, there's you know specific restaurants and community places. And, and of yeah. course that place on Melrose that I've been to a couple times. Well, there's that one. There's a place here in the valley called Mercado Buenos Aires, which is both a market for Argentinian things as well as a deli and a restaurant. And it's like a little hole-in-the-wall strip mall thing from the outside, but oh, my God, the food. <laughs> okay. And it's one of those places where you can go and watch the World Cup games at 3 in the morning when they're playing from wherever they're being broadcast. So, oh, I love that. Yeah, huh. yeah very, very uh, connected to the old country, so... Uh, so here's, uh, let me just read you something we can get started on, on, a, on a thing about Zero Dark Thirty. I thought uh, since that's, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be going away. <clears throat> and uh, uh, Tom, uh, Glenn Kenny and I s uh, spoke a little while ago about it, and <clears throat> he was referring to a Tom Carson piece is in the American Prospect, which is called America's Morality Brigade, colon, Zero Dark Thirty Doesn't Endorse Torture. And what he says, uh, basically, that no question if um, uh, Bigelow and Bull knew better and scrapped fact for fiction, you know, created their own, uh, you'd better make a good case that it was a conscious choice before you slag them, then they do deserve to be in hot water. But if you ask whether I think that would invalidate the movie, then I'm going to have to annoy you by saying, uh-uh. And even to some extent defending their reasoning. For starters, depicting torture as an effective intelligence tool isn't the same as endorsing it by a long shot. As Andrew Sullivan should certainly know, even if Dick Cheney doesn't, the minute asking whether torture, quote-unquote, works is accepted as the right yardstick for approving of it, the moral argument is lost. It's either abhorrent or it isn't. Back in 1966, this is the cool part, the Battle of Algiers opened with an Algerian captive cracking under pressure to reveal the hero's whereabouts. And I don't think anyone would call the Battle of Algiers pro-torture. Instead, it's pro-terrorist, the only universally uh, acknowledged great movie that it is. And here's what Kennedy, Kennedy said uh, in response to that, because he pointed this article out to me. Uh, he said that none of the ZD30 uh, uh, opponents right now are accusing it of, of, of endorsing torture would even think about trashing uh, Gilo Pontecorvo's Battle of Algiers, which, as I repeat, also deals in torture and B says it worked in at least one instance. Kenny also accurately called them Stalinists, people who want only the morally correct, ethically forward-thinking representations of history in the films they see. Like all political harridans and supporters of PC causes, they wanted Zero Dark Thirty to say the right thing about the practice of torture or to show what an evil thing it is. But because it presents a morally ambiguous portrait of the effort to find Osama bin Laden, they are against it. So what is your reaction to all this? What is it, where you come down and everything? Well, I, I think the first point, and one that I, I wish we could get over in terms of our conversation about film in general, is the idea that depicting something in a movie automatically is an endorsement of it. Right. Um, I don't know what kindergarten class people got stuck in developmentally, where you think that the mere depiction of something in a film means that you endorse it, yeah. or that you are taking a stance on it one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the job of a dramatist is to dramatize things, first and foremost. And in particular, what Bigelow and Bowl are doing is this strange, high 
hybrid, this new hybrid of journalism from Bull's background and the language of action cinema from her background and this collision between the two that takes things that are fairly dry as topics or, or fairly um, apolitical as topics and then pumps them up with this visceral charge. Uh, her filmmaking is undeniable in terms of you having a response to it in the theater. And I think what people get upset about is that they have this visceral emotional reaction, mm-hmm. yet they aren't being led by the hand and told exactly what you're supposed to feel about any of that. And so the result is an outrage that comes out of the notion that they may have watched something that is morally iffy or questionable or just unspecified in terms of what the filmmaker thinks and leaves them to have their own impression. And I think we are so used to, at this point, being spoon-fed how every beat in every film is supposed to make you feel that when that doesn't happen, people freak out. And I think Zero Dark Thirty is a perfect example of a debate that misses most of what makes the film interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the film is about torture for about nine or 15 minutes of the whole thing and the rest of the movie has nothing to do with that and ultimately isn't pointing a finger at good, bad on either side of the situation. Um, I think there's a far more interesting discussion about Zero Dark Thirty that no one's having and that's the way they depict the actual image of Osama bin Laden in the film and the fact that so many people, not just conspiracy theorists at this point, Mm -hmm. but journalists and people who study in the intelligence community and things that have happened who believe that Osama may have died years earlier and that this was more than anything a symbolic act. I think it's fascinating that Bigelow never shows you a face, that Bigelow never gets close up and makes sure you understand this is Osama bin Laden. The end of her movie is as cloaked in ambiguity as the beginning of her movie. That's the point, is she is not coming down on the side of this is what happened, this is how you should feel about it, this is what everything in the movie means. Her movie is about driven people assigned a task who spend well over a decade focused on one thing Mm -hmm. and what that does to you as a person. I'm far more interested in Jason Clark's reaction to what he goes through in the movie and to how he evolves to the point where losing pets is what emotionally breaks him. He does in those rooms, seeing all those naked guys, as he puts it, that's that's something that has a slow burn toll on him. But when he finally reaches a breaking point, it's over something entirely different, something that allows you to see the glimmer of how he held on to that humanity while doing these terrible things. Mm -hmm. And I think he is that character, is a fascinating example of living with two totally different moral stances inside one person. I don't think Jason Clark's character in the film is a sadist. I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think he's a monster. I think he's a guy who uses what they refer to as enhanced interrogation techniques mm-hmm. because he believes it works. Yeah. You know, to bookend this back to Tarantino, as uh, as Michael Madsen says in uh, Reservoir Dogs, you let me cut a couple of his thumbs off, he's going to tell you whether or not he wears women's underwear. Yeah. Point being that, you know, there's a reason we still have this debate about torture. We may hate it. We may find it morally repugnant. As a society, we may wish that there was never, ever any reason for it to be used. And yet, here we are, 2012. We're still talking about it because in those rooms, it comes down to a choice by those people as to how much they want that information and what they're willing to do to try and get it. And, 
think the point of the movie is to second guess that. I don't think the point of the movie is to debate that. I think the point of the movie is to show the general atmosphere that existed after 2001 as this manhunt began and continued. Yeah, uh, that's very well put, and I think exactly what it is doing. I think it's ambiguous in a very pointed and, and, and unmissable way, and uh, I, but I sense that there's enough of a very tight, uh, ardent cadre of people within the uh, within the Hollywood production community, obviously to some extent within the, the the journalistic community that is beating this film up, and they are not quitting on it. I don't know when this is gonna if it's gonna stop or it's gonna keep going, but they're. Um, I don't know if it's if it's if it's loud enough, but I think that what what happens is that the person who does not wade into these things doesn't give it a whole lot of thought is uh, probably going to say, oh, yeah, it's, uh, moral morally dicey, possibly possibly a little 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 dicey on some level. Maybe I'll vote for you know Les Misérables or something. You think that? Oh, I certainly think that happens. I think I think movies get hung with a narrative that is in 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 oftentimes it's based on the loudest people about the movie, not the people that are a more informed about it or b just reasonable people. I think it tends to be the shouted opinion becomes the thing that sticks the hardest. And yeah, in the case of Zero Dark Thirty, mm -hmm. I really don't think this is a huge conversation. I think it's a conversation that keeps happening because of the Oscar season, because of the fact that there are people that, now that they've got their teeth on it, yeah. they're using this as a platform into a larger conversation they've wanted to have for a while. Yeah. Zero Dark Thirty is an amazing target mm -hmm. to have these conversations about because it is one of the few films that I can point at recently that deals with overtly politicized subjects without making it easy for you to see where the filmmakers stand. Yeah. And I think that, that freaks people out, and I think they have to try and pin down the politics of the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. All right, well put. So you're, um, so maybe, I'll tell you one thing that uh, Glenn and I also got into, um, into the Tarantino a bit, and he uh, feels that if, if there's such a, uh, he feels like uh, a strange sloppiness going on here like he's a, he was very taken with uh with uh inglorious bastards which i was not for the morally reprehensible scene that i have uh, referred to many times of which the german soldier not the ardent nazi party hack but the german soldier refuses to give up the location of some comrades of his who are you know a mile or two away and therefore takes a baseball bat in the head and is, and is killed uh, rather smirkingly, rather, I mean, it's, it's probably one of the most morally repugnant um, scenes I think I've ever witnessed in my life. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm not being uh, uh, exaggerating. And this is one of the things I, I absolutely deplore. And, some, and you have said to me, well, here's what he's, I think Tarantino is straddling the fence here. He knows it's morally repugnant, but he gets a, he sort of gets a kind of a kinetic thrill or charge or something out of doing it anyway because it's provocative, because it's in your face, because it, it leaves you shaken on some level. Uh, is that, am I correctly uh, describing your, uh, your, your reaction to that particular scene? I think I think Quentin, since day one, has been a provocateur, and I think he is well aware of the uh, how far he can push an audience and, and even uh, what line he can push them past in a theater. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, starting with the reservoir, I, I think he has always counted on the idea that those moments where he completely shocks your system mm-hmm. are the moments you carry out of a theater with you, good, bad, whatever, but the conversation um, definitely uh, continues outside. I think the worst thing in the world for him would be to make a movie where the general reaction was, yeah, that was all right, and that was it, and nobody had any other conversation about it. I think that would drive him berserk to make a moderately okay, yeah, that was fine, I saw it, I don't really remember it. Um, One way or another, you're still talking about Inglorious Bastards this many years later, and I think ultimately that is his goal. The the biggest villain in uh, Django Unchained is not, I would submit, uh, the uh, slave owners, the Leonardo DiCaprio figure, the Don Johnson figure. There's a lot of vile, white, cracker assholes who are who use the N-word endlessly, who are obviously vile human beings, but they're not the worst. The worst villain in this film, and I think you know where I'm going with this. Steven is, has to be. Is, Sa- is Samuel, Samuel Jackson's character. No? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it has to be. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Sam knew that when he took the part, because as he put it, he calls him the most reprehensible Negro in cinema history. <laughs> when did he say that? To you or, or what? Uh, he said that, I, I think I've seen it, uh, that quote a couple of times from the press day on in New York, where uh, he was well aware reading it. He was like about halfway through reading his part and called Quentin and was like, oh my God, <laughs> you are asking me to play truly the worst black man ever depicted on the screen. <laughs> And I, I think that's part of what Sam liked was the challenge of going in, playing the intelligence behind those eyes. And I think for the moment you see Steven in the film, there's no question. He is the worst person in that building. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, but there is a, um, uh, several flaws in, in this film, and, and I think that one that you could point to in particular is uh, and, and attributed to the to the tragic loss of Sally Menke, and that's his uh, longtime editor, and that's the absurd scene <clears throat> in which uh, suddenly, in the midst of the, uh, uh, the about to, uh, there are these guys wearing Ku Klux Klan sheets over their head, and they do this whole routine, this whole bit about how you can't quite see out of the eye holes, and maybe if we made the eye holes bigger, and they and they do this whole thing. I mean, that is com- that is just like. Stopping the movie so you can be funny, so you can be uh, self-referential. I mean, that, that is to me the uh, just w- one example of, 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 a, of a general a sloppy, indulgent way of making this film. What do you? Have, what is your response to the eye hole scene, Jonah Hill? Well, the eye hole scene, and look, I I think, I, and I will maintain this. Um, one of the greatest film experiences I've ever had uh, in terms of an audience and seeing how a film can radically affect an audience's mood uh, was the night that the second Rodney King trial was going to verdict. Um, you know, and I, I know you were in L.A. at those times. You remember the first one, you remember the riots, you remember all that. And the tension as they built up the second verdict mm-hmm. and the idea that they had to get it, quote, right this time. Right. Uh, really, it was it, a very racially charged time in Los Angeles, a very racially charged time to live here. Mm-hmm. And Warner Brothers, who I assume had booked this months and months ahead of time and had no idea this was going to time out this way, on the night the verdict was being read, happened to be re-releasing Blazing Saddles in the theaters. (laughs) And it played at the Village in Westwood. So my friends and I all went. We were thrilled. We were like, oh, my God, the chance to see a film print of it. So we went to see it, Mm -hmm. and 
it was the primetime show, the 7 o'clock, completely sold out, filled the theater, and I would say probably a good 50-50 racial mix. A um, lot of black faces in the house, a lot of white faces in the house, and a weird mood before the movie began. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as the movie began, as soon as they came out and started getting ugly, and as soon as the language began, and as soon as the movie started really rubbing your face in it, mm-hmm. all that went away. Huge, huge response from the crowd. Everybody laughing at every line. Mm-hmm. The classic scene with the bells interrupting the sheriff is uh, near. <laughs> Unbelievable responses. And at the end of it, walking out, we all heard the verdicts or got the verdicts uh, once we got to the cars. Last thing on my mind at that point. And it was like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But sitting in that theater, irrelevant. Because we were all laughing at the diffusion of this truly painful thing that we still live with. And, you know, when people talk about how, well, slavery was in the 1800s and it's years and years ago, it's still a fresh wound, I think, because of how we handle handle it culturally. Um, It's kind of like in Germany, the way they absolutely refuse to say anything about that period of time. There's a younger generation growing up who it's verboten. You don't talk about it. You don't acknowledge it. But it did happen. And it was a cultural madness that grabbed an entire country. So if you don't deal with it, it's almost like you're pretending it didn't happen or wishing it didn't happen, and that doesn't help. I think a scene like the one that you're talking about in Django, there is a real desire on Quentin's part to defang these people, to defang the worst of them. And not defang them because he's trying to make them less dangerous, but defang them to show how fucking ridiculous it is. How bizarre the entire notion of, Mm -hmm. all right, let's go put the hoods on our head, and then we'll ride in, we'll be terrifying, and we'll look really scary, and this will be... And it's such a crazy idea in the first place that I think what he's doing is pulling the pants down on this entire notion of the faceless anonymity of that crowd and how terrifying a symbol it was, and he's making them ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I think a big chunk of this movie does the same thing that I love about Blazing Saddles, which is it wallows in it in a way that really points out how bizarre and crazy a cultural movement like that is, or a cultural virus like that, that kind of rampant, institutionalized, completely socially accepted racism, where there was a period where people could literally sit across the table from each other and calmly discuss the sale of human beings as livestock, as if it were no big deal. Mm -hmm. And I think by, by making it as ridiculous and gross and making the people as silly as they are, I think there's value in that. And I I think that that's one of the things that a movie like Django does, where this, you know, Lincoln, a movie that I, I know you've had your problems with this year, remains very austere and doesn't get its hands dirty. And for all the debate of the 13th Amendment and what it would mean, there's really only one human moment in that movie that underlines it, and that's Tommy Lee Jones going home at the end. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I agree with that. And until that moment, 
moment. There's no real human face to what they're talking about. It's all ideological. It's all removed. It's all very clean. And I don't know that that discussion should be clean. I don't know that that discussion shouldn't be ridiculous. I don't know that that discussion shouldn't be somewhat visceral and gross and occasionally indulgent. I think if you don't really underscore all of it, in essence, you're, you're making it words on a history book page and less interesting and less immediate. There is something very human and immediate about the eye hole scene that is, yes, ridiculous. Yes, perhaps too long. But it, it makes them all human beings who are just preposterous, who are going to do this thing, not the faceless herd that they want to be seen as, not the faceless evil of the, the Knight Riders or any of that. It's... He, he demasks them, he defangs them, he makes them less scary by showing how ridiculous they are altogether. Okay. I would, uh, I would respond that I um, don't think it's really analogous uh, for uh, our culture of 2012 with Barack Obama in the White House to be <clears throat> sort of ignoring and, and, and looking the other way at this festering ethical moral wound in our psyches or our souls, which is called slavery, which is uh, something that um, people are like, when you, when you think back on it and you think it was actually, it is, it's appalling to think that that was actually within the province of, a, of, a, of, a, of regular business people who had no particular venality to them, except they were just part of the culture of the 1830s, 40s, 50s, 60s. When did slavery actually be, be, begin? Was that sometime right after, what, 1780s sometime? When did they start importing? When did that practice actually begin? Do you know? Yeah, I, I, it was between the late 1700s and the early 1800s that the practice really picked up. Right. And, I, and you know, altogether, we're talking about 100, 125 years of American history where we have this yeah. monumental stain. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we, we certainly live in a different era now. I know people love to use the word post-racial. I don't buy it. I don't think we are. I think we are still having the conversation. I think we saw a lot of crazy, ugly code words used during the last election. Yeah, of course. I think the fact that all that is still there, yeah. uh, it, it's, still a, it's still a real conversation. It's still something that is actively part of our, our uh, daily existence. I, I think this is still part of the philosophy that we're grappling with as a country is, is who you know, it's the same thing that I think drives so much of the white man fear today of we're being supplanted. Our culture isn't the dominant culture anymore. That's we true. are no it's longer not. the yeah. ruling class. That's right. I think that fear comes from the fact that they realize that, you know, this is going to change. That conversation will continue to change and evolve. And there's going to come a point where we look back at it and we can't believe there's ever a time where that many whites were the only real power base in America, because we just won't look like that or be that anymore. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know that it's analogous, though, to, um, to a 60-year-old history in which the most horrific crimes of the 20th century uh, happened, uh, which is in Nazi Germany and the, and the extermination program. I just don't think it's uh, analogous. And I, I think that um, also that he, uh, to, to, and I understand, actually, I, I totally I think that he is more um, uh, morally out there, and there's a, a, and he reaches people in a much more emotionally vivid way in in Django Unchained than the uh, the more or less procedural like 
discussion of the of the bargainings and the trade-offs and the and the pressures that Abraham Lincoln got through to get the Emancipation Proclamation. It's a much more emotionally uh, vivid film, but it's uh, it's it's longish and and way long in, in my view. And I, I just don't believe anybody who knows film as well as you do feels that it's satisfactory satisfactory to watch. To this thing for two hours and 45 minutes. There must have been a way for this thing to be delivered in, you know, maybe a hundred minutes, maybe a hundred. I just don't believe it. It, it warrants the, the weight. Well, I, I think, sure, you could have done a very streamlined version, which was all about, hey, you tell me how to find these guys. I'll tell you how to get your wife back. Yeah. Oh, they're all working for Calvin Candy. Let's go straight to Calvin yeah. Candy land. Let's sure. do that. Yeah. Absolutely, there is. Um, but I think a lot of the westerns that Quentin Tarantino is specifically doing, they're, they're westerns that take their time. Corbucci's films, Leone's films, uh, these guys did not have a propensity, a propensity towards the lean. They really, you know, I, I look at Duck You Sucker, which I consider a uh, misfire by Leone to some degree. And I, I think it's analogous to what you're talking about, the, the idea that it's over long, the seriousness that's in there, because there is some, some subtext to Leone's Duck You Sucker about the idea of the, uh, the fascists and the anarchists and, you know, a specific time and place in European history. But he's, he is a guy that never met a subplot or a character actor he didn't want to fully indulge. Mm -hmm. And I think with Quentin, his big thing is... Um, he really loves creating characters, even if you'll only see them for one or two scenes, and then letting them breathe, letting them take their time on screen. Um, I I wish there were more American screenwriters who loved language the way Tarantino. Oh yeah, I completely agree with that. That's, I yeah. I like the fact that when his characters talk, they talk, and they really they reveal themselves through talking, and they paint a picture of how they see the world through their talking, and. Yes, there is a leaner version of what he does. I'm, I'm sure of it, too. I, I know that he could make shorter films. I know that, you know, since Kill Bill, the propensity has been towards longer, and he has really filled out. You know, even Pulp Fiction looks fairly lean by comparison. Now. It certainly does. You know, um, Jackie Brown's pretty lean. There are all, those three films, to me, that's the peak. You know, uh, Reservoir Dogs. And you talk to Roger Avery about what he thinks about Quentin Cinzi. I mean, there's no question. The man, I don't think the man has, is, is certainly not going in a disciplined way. He's saying, whatever I fart out is going to be on some level profound because I love my movies and I write delicious dialogue and actors who, have, who are kind of on the skids. Uh, I bring them back and I do all these great things and people love me and, my, and the last movie made a lot of money. So the hell with it. I'm just going to be, you know, he went off the planet after Jackie Brown and he was great. Look at the, you know, the, the, the rest of our dogs is almost neorealism compared to what's happening now. You know? Oh, absolutely, and they're very different films. I, I think he he took a radical left turn in his career with with Inglorious, and then this is along that same trajectory. So we're we're seeing a different period for him now. Um, but it's kind of the way I feel about the Coens, and the, the Coens now are, are more prolific than they used to be. There used to be longer gaps between the films for them, and I think those gaps were mm -hmm. them waiting until they felt like they had the exact right movie to make. Mm -hmm. Now it feels more like they are willing to make movies, and not everyone is going to be the polished gem, but that they are more interested in creating a body of work than in focusing on each and every one to the exclusion of a legacy. 
And I think for them, there there was a period of time where it it was a little scary to be a Coen Brothers fan because you wondered, am I going to get more than six or seven movies out of these guys? <laughs> Yeah. And I think with Tarantino, and you know, they hit a major roadblock, which is the White Sea, where afterwards I think they really had to take a step back and reassess what they wanted from the business. Could you please I think explain with to Tino, people who don't know what the White Sea, could you explain what that is? Uh, to the White Sea is a, a novel by James Dickey, who also wrote Deliverance. Um, and the novel is just remarkable. It's this amazing, beautiful, um, meditative, strange trip through a World War II landscape where an American tail gunner gets shot down during the firebombing of Tokyo, waits it out for a few days, and then decides he's going to walk home all the way north across the Bering Strait back into Alaska and go go back. Uh, David Webb Peoples and his white Jan- wife Janet, who wrote uh, 12 Monkeys, did the first couple of drafts, and then the Coens came in. They were going to direct, and they did the last draft. Mm-hmm. And it is largely... Uh, dialogue free. There's about 15 minutes at the beginning where there is dialogue, but then 90% of the movie would have been silent. Brad Pitt was set to star. They had about an $80 million budget, and they were really, really close to going. Mm. And at the last minute, Warner blanked and pulled the plug. Mm. And there was a period where they were telling friends that that was it. That was the end of their film career. And I think... um, Post 9-11, they also, they were having a lot of anxieties and fears about what happened there, that they were communicating to friends and family. They lost their mom right around that time. There was a point where it looked like they were done. Mm -hmm. And then they finally, I think, had a revision of that, a a sort of, they came back to the love of filmmaking and the desire to, to make more movies. You know, Quentin talks about quitting at 10, and if he quits at 10, he's, thinking legacy. He's thinking, okay, I'm done, I'm out, I don't want to be making Topaz later in my career. I don't want to be the guy who is, you know, overstaying his welcome. I don't want I don't think Quentin Tarantino ever wants buddy buddy on his filmography. And I think that there is a you look at older directors and because he is such a freak about Hollywood history and about the whole story of artist narratives, um, he's definitely scared of that end period. And to some degree, I think that justifies what he's doing, which is I'm going to pack each of these things that I make with every idea I have. And if I end up making nine of them, they're all as full as I could possibly make them. Um, could he be leaner? Could he make tighter movies? Yeah, he could, definitely. Um, but would that be his voice? No. And ultimately, I, I'm interested in what his voice is doing, how he's expressing his ideas. And I don't want from him the same thing I want from every other filmmaker. The filmmakers I really am, am interested in and excited by are the guys who don't necessarily listen to the demand of the marketplace, don't necessarily tailor what they're doing to what everybody else is doing at a given time, and who are very true to what they are after. Right now, for him, that is this notion of exploring real history through the prism of the exploitation language that he's soaked himself in. And there is something fascinating to me about the idea of whether it's Inglorious or it's this one, using exploitation cinema language to empower exploited people and to, in doing so, repurpose what the exploitation is. And I, I was saying this to somebody, and they brought up black exploitation and said, well, wasn't that about empowering the exploited? Well, no, for the most part, because a lot of black exploitation was funded by white Hollywood, who literally were exploiting what they saw as a societal moment. Yeah. I don't think a lot of those films were controlled by people who were 
loving the the fantasy of what those characters were doing. I think they were very cynical and calculated. I think when you look at Quentin's movie, Quentin's movie comes from as honest a place as I can imagine, which is he does have a huge abiding fondness for black culture. He does have a huge abiding fondness for these particular westerns that he's doing in this. And the idea of making a southern where he empowers a black bounty hunter and where he actually explores some of the notions that Hollywood has ignored completely, black slavers. When was the last time, when was the, have you ever seen a Hollywood movie that even addressed the notion that there were black slavers, much less how they were regarded by other blacks, how they were seen by, at the time, how they fit into that society, and how many Hollywood movies have ever allowed a Nat Turner-like central character to drive a love story or to drive a revenge picture? Um, while Django, in many ways, is a big Hollywood commercial movie, mm-hmm. it is also, in significant ways, a refutation of what Hollywood does. Mm. All right. Well, you're very eloquent in defending Tarantino. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> but I, uh, I, I just don't. Uh, you know, we're going to have to just uh, respectfully uh, agree to this. I do respect the fact, Jeff, that that if you don't love that language, you know, I I see a lot of times you write about film language as something that is important to you. And, for example, I know when you talk about Lincoln, the Kaminsky lights bug you. And it's it's a chemical level thing. You can't reprogram yourself to just wake up and say, oh, okay, well, the Kaminsky lights no longer bother me. That looks like reality to me now. It doesn't. It looks stagey to you. It looks artificial to you. You don't like that aesthetic. And as a result... I guarantee you, as far as the House of Representatives chamber is concerned, it is artificial. It's completely... Exactly. It bothers you because it takes you out of the reality of that film or what it is about that film that you do like. And I've seen what you said that you enjoyed about it. I've seen what you said you didn't enjoy about it. I I think that's all very genuine. I think your reaction to the, the length of the Tarantino films and the loose nature of how he gets to where he's going as opposed to being streamlined, I think your reaction to that is incredibly genuine. And I think that's an aesthetic reaction. I think it is bare bones, like deep down inside, this aesthetic is not for you. This this use of this language, this the way he's telling his story, doesn't do it for you. And that's not something anybody's ever going to talk you out of. Um, and vice versa, the idea that these things mean what they mean to me, or the idea that I react the way I do to them, I I think a lot of that comes from the things that are important to me aesthetically. So um, ultimately we can agree on the idea that there are great ideas in Django, that there is great use of language, that there is Mm -hmm. stuff that you liked in it, Mm -hmm. but the indulgence of it and the the securitous nature of how he gets to where he's going – it just doesn't appeal to you, and I totally get that. Yeah. I totally get why his choices in film language aren't for every audience. I had this and won't be. I had the, the, this kind of window opened up. I, when I first watched um, both Kill Bills, I was not as negative of, uh, in my reactions as I have been to Django. But boy, when I watched it again recently, because a, a friend was watching it, and I was sitting through it because just to be sort of be polite, and it was just on the TV. Sure. Man, did I get tired of watching that fucking thing. I mean, it's just... It, whatever uh, d- delights, whatever charms, whatever uh, just pure surge, uh, hot popcorn enjoyment I got out of that film, 
it's gone, man. I just don't find, you know, maybe it's because Django seems to poison the well for me, but I, I don't, and I am someone who am absolutely deliciously, uh, I find the deliciousness of his dialogue in the first three films, <clears throat> you know, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown to be completely, uh, uh, you know, just, just delightful, you know. Just I think Jackie is always going to be a bit of an anomaly for him, and I think part of it is working from source material. Part of it is um, <laughs> yeah. that we almost never see movies about. Right. And I, while I wouldn't call Jackie Brown a love story because I don't think ultimately it's about making the connection, it's about recognizing the connections there and not being brave enough to take it. Right. And I, I think you're probably never going to see many more movies with a Robert Forrester and a Pam Greer at those ages <laughs> playing that kind of material. Yeah, that's true. Um, and it's really outside his experience, but I think Leonard is such a huge part of how he defined his voice. Mm -hmm. I, I would imagine his paperback collection must have had every Elmore Leonard book yeah. geared with notes on them, underlined. Um, and George V. Higgins, I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I would think Higgins was a big influence too. Like, the, the, there are crime writers, there are history writers, there are guys who did certain things, who I know he he took cues from. But whereas Jackie's a straight adaptation, I, I think he's now pushing into a place I can't name anybody who's making movies like Inglorious mm -hmm. or who's making movies like Django. I I don't know that there are any movies like that, and I think like them or not like them, they are very honestly where he's evolved to from where he began. So, yeah, he's not making Pulp or Reservoir ever again, I don't think. Yeah. And uh, and as far as Jackie goes, I, I unfortunately feel like the, the commercial reaction to that one killed the chances of us seeing more Leonard from him or him making that kind of film again. I'm also delighted. Uh, I happened to just get the, uh, the Tarantino box set sent to me by the Miramax folks. I mean, by the Weinstein folks, and uh, I watched uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, True Romance on Blu-ray. I've never seen it. I thought it might improve slightly. It's funny. It looks like a good DVD. It doesn't look like a great Blu-ray. It looks all right. It's fine. It's, it's nice. But I thought it would be better looking somehow, more vivid, more film, filmy or something. Do you, have you looked at it? Have you looked at the... Uh... It's funny, and I, I will tell you this, and uh, this is probably going to make people who uh, know of my love for Tarantino shocked. Yeah. I don't like true romance. Oh. I, I, just, I, I don't care for the film. You don't like the ending, you mean? Where he lives? Uh, I, don't, I don't like the film. I don't like the collision of Scott's style, which I find smothering. Uh -huh. um, and I am not a big Tony Scott fan in general. I, uh, I, there are very few of his films that I, I can revisit. You can't. You um, don't like Man on Fire? I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was I, one of his. I, uh, I like Man on Fire, but it's the beginning of that crazy, spastic, avid fart thing that he does, yeah. where mm -hmm. he can't say something once; he has to say it sixteen times. Mm -hmm. and he has to have stutters, and he has to have words float across the screen, and everything gets shaky and weird. You know, I, Domino may be the most painful film I've. No, I agree I've, with you. That's where, modern, I, where I got I, off the boat. Uh, Domino. Uh, Killed, killed it for me for a while. I, I, and, I, and that is that is to me a crystallization of what he was starting to do in Man on Fire. Man on Fire works, I think, despite of Scott, not because of Scott. I think the performances are great. I think the the book itself, the source material, great, lean, nasty pulp material. Yeah. Um, and no inside the incident. a case where I don't like the collision. I don't think he's right for Tarantino, and I I find the use of the Badlands music insanely distracting. Um, that's a case where a film quote 
pulls me out completely because it's the Badlands music. Yeah, well, that's what it was and, to me, but I think he was just counting on the fact that maybe one, 1. 1.5, 2% of the viewing public recognized it and made it, it was a problem for them. Oh, but that movie is so important to me and, yeah. and is still, I, I would argue, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, one of the finest things Malick's ever done. I would say also, though, that particularly uh, one of the most, uh, most high-integrity moments of any major director in the last 10 years was Tony Scott's decision uh, to, to delay the inciting incident of uh, Man on Fire until 45 minutes into that film. No inciting incident for 45 minutes. That is almost, that's like a landmark thing for me, given that it was a, a, a big money movie with Denzel and the big studio wanted, yeah. you know, the usual things. That was one of the bravest things. I, I, I mean, I was really impressed by that. And that's when I woke up to him. And that's why I was kind of very pained when, when um, Domino came along, because I said, oh my yeah. God, this is too much. But. But you got to admit, what's the last last major studio film with that kind of money thrown at, with this kind of star power, where nothing happened of a you know decisive triggering the plot thing until forty five minutes in, which is when the kidnapping uh, happened. That oh, was it, it, it is not common, and I do I do like the script of that movie quite a bit. I think that's the the thing that I would still say is right. whether I like the directorial style of Man on Fire. Right. I think the script is pretty great, and I think yeah. the cast is great in it. Right. I actually saw the um, after the fact the, um, the the Scott Glenn Italian version. I remember I was working at a theater when that thing came out. I saw uh-huh. it two or three times just by virtue of uh-huh. being in the theater while it was playing, and uh-huh. I always remembered it as a nice, nasty little yeah. Yeah. Uh, thriller. Not great, but yeah. good. Right, right. Hey, by the way, um, <clears throat> have you had a chance? I just did a kind of a rundown. Of, I do it in stages um, for Sundance. I did a kind of a rundown of what I think is probably. Uh, worth my attention, I, and I start at like fifty-something um, titles, and then I know that I'm gonna no more than that, fifty-seven titles, and then I know that I'm eventually gonna win myself down to uh, thirty or thirty-five, being on the on the fo- on the you know the tight focus, and uh, and then of course I'll be receptive to whatever happens as I move along, and you know you'll hear things as we all always do, but did you have a chance to peek at what anything that I tapped out. I didn't uh, write anything. I, I just I saw the thing it. that you put up about it. I have yet to really dig into Sundance. I know that um obviously I think priority one for me is <laughs> Link Letters before midnight. Um just because I love the first two films. Of course, yeah. And uh I love the idea of this being the fictional equivalent of Apted Seven Up series where every now and then we're gonna come <laughs> back and we're just gonna see them again and see where they are and I really I I love that and I I love that they snuck it by everybody that it was in production and done before anybody even realized it was happening. Now, remind me, um, uh, did Delpy and Hawk co-write the Parisian one, which was called Before Sunset in '04? I, I don't know if they did or not. I don't know if the screenwriter credit comes from how they build it, which is more. Um, and I, I haven't seen the script, so I don't know. Are the scripts uh, everything's on the page? Are the scripts? place and location and general topic of conversation and then they allow them to build it there Um, because if so I could see how a screenplay credit was essential Mm. for them because essentially they are building it but if not then I I don't know I Mm. I don't remember the screenplay credit for the second one I just I just know that the uh, at least the Sundance notes anyway give them equal credit. They'll be Hawk yeah. Linklater, so that's and I think definitely they they have an ownership now of these characters and where they are in their lives that yeah. that Linklater's got to have uh, right. just a love for the idea that he knows mm. all he's got to do is put up the bat signal and they're going to come running to do yeah. these um, because they really they both seem to love what they have become. 
Um, I do know uh, I'm very curious to see if David Gordon Green is David Gordon Green again. Um, yeah, because he became um, very commercial with Pineapple Express, and then then what happened? What, what, what was after that? Pineapple, Your Highness, uh, he's been doing Eastbound and Down. And, and while I'm I'm fine with uh, The Sitter, the Jonah Hill thing, yeah. while I like the uh, some of the comedy David Gordon Green, right. uh, I miss the All the Real Girls, George Washington, Gordon Green. The George I Washington was almost Terrence Malick. Wasn't it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I I met him for the first time at Ebert's Overlook Film Festival the year I went. Uh, I was there to host uh, an anime screening and talk about anime with Roger afterwards. But that was the year George Washington came. And both the lead kid and David were there. And it was just awesome talking with him about the film. And yes, Malik was definitely name-checked in terms of the conversations we had. But, uh, But it felt really genuine like that was a reaction to you know where he'd grown up and what he'd seen mm-hmm. it's funny talking to people who went to film school with him they say that david gordon green they knew in film school was the pineapple express david gordon green hmm. funny. that all of them were shocked by george washington and all the real girls like that blew their minds they had no idea he had that in him and then once he got back to comedy they were like oh there he is <laughs> to david we know so it's interesting he's had several different versions of himself and I'm excited to see which one of them is the guy that shows up at Sundance this yeah, year. Yeah. And I'm sure you're you're cranked about uh, the Bar- uh, Park Chan-wook's uh, Stoker which looks to me like a, the it's really a, a redo to some extent. Uh, I mean deliberately to the point of of uh, of giving Matthew Good's character the name of Uncle Charlie. I mean this is Oh yeah, it's know. it's shadow on his death. I I talked to um I think Greg saw it um a while ago. Okay. And uh, was okay with it. Didn't okay. didn't flip for it one way or another. Okay. I always have a hard time with Asian filmmakers coming over to Hollywood because I think they are rarely given great material. I think a lot of times they are um, they they are lost in the system once they get here. And I like Park Chan-wook a lot. I think he's an amazing filmmaker um, on his own terms and making the movies he wants to make. I'm curious to see how he fits into Hollywood, uh, what they've done with him, what they've given him. So I'll I'll go. I'm (coughs) curious about it. Now, you know the Jane Campion thing is a TV series, right? Yeah, I, I picked that up, but it's still being presented as a six-hour straight through, right? Yeah, but that's that's what it is, is I think they're showing every episode of the series, back to back to back to back. With breaks and, in between? Uh, yeah, it's, it's IFC, I think, has it, or Sundance Channel has it for later in the year. Is it is it like 55 minutes and they take a break for five minutes, you get to stand up and walk around, and then, or they just sit there for six hours straight? Oh, I don't know. I would imagine they have to give you at least one intermission somewhere in there. Yeah. They have to. There's no way anybody stays seated for six hours straight. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I don't want to ignore or pass along. I mean, I just figure, you know, that's that's too much of a block of time for given everything that I'm trying to do. I just, I, I think it's excessive, and I just don't uh, feel the need. Well, it's that. it's tough at a film festival. There's very few six-hour films that I would ever be willing to go see at a film festival, yeah. only because that's a that's your day. I mean, if I were going to show it as a as a film, I would. You know, there's always ways to. Uh, I would try and get it down to, you know, as I was uh, jokingly saying, I can't get it down, down to four. They can't get it down to three and a half. Something. Yeah. It seems to me that, you know, I know it's, uh, television has certain requirements and there's a certain way you shoot it. You know it's one episode, you're going to build upon that into the second. I just don't see why they would uh, present it as a theatrical experience that's, uh, you know, along those lines. I mean, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'd like to, I'd like, I don't want to ignore it. I certainly don't want to pass it bypass. I'm just figuring No, it's it Campion, so I'd be interested. But yeah, it's a, it's a huge chunk of time to try and take there in the middle of the day. And um, the other one, there was one other that you wrote something. Oh, uh, the Shane Carruth film. Did you see Primer? 
Uh, why am I blanking on that? Uh, Primer is a time travel movie. I guess I didn't. It's I guess I very, very small scale. It's just about guys who have created what they believe is a time travel device, and they oh. start using it. Right. And it's all shot in little industrial warehouses and storage spaces. Right. And the language of it is such that I think the first time through, I got maybe half of what they said, maybe. Okay. Because it's very dry. It's like real engineers talking to each other. There's no drama to it. It's just that once things start to go wrong, mm-hmm. if you're paying close attention, it's incredibly freaky and upsetting. Um, but it's presented in this dry, clinical manner that is fascinating. And Caruth has not made a film since. Mm. So I think people, uh, anybody who saw Primer is probably pretty intrigued by Upstream Colors simply because he's got a lot of promise. He had a script that he worked on for several years and couldn't get produced called Atopiary, which is out there and bouncing around. And Atopiary, brilliant. I still don't know entirely what I read. Mm-hmm. So I think he's one of those guys where there's a big brain in there, there's a lot of ambition. I'm really curious what he's finally done behind the camera again. Mm-hmm. So I, I think for a lot of people, Upstream Color is going to be a, a big okay. uh, priority. All it's right. definitely high on my list. Okay. And then there are those nine films. I mean, this has been remarked by, by a lot of uh, people, Anthony Bresnik and, and others, about, the, uh, about several films of a, of a, of a sexual content. Uh, envelope pushing inappropriate sexual uh, uh, relationships, so that's pretty strong. I mean, that seems to be a pretty. I mean, you got nine films that are kind of under that. I don't know how many others, but these are obviously, you know. So that's that's kind of a, a theme going on there, I guess, for whatever. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Sometimes it's, at Sundance or Toronto, you'll see a theme emerge where I don't think any of the filmmakers were aware of each other, but something just kind of happens where there's something in the air and they all kind of get get up to it. I thought the description for Milkshake, milkshake was uh, fascinating. Yeah. Um, what about Jolie Jolson's <laughs> Great, Great... Yeah, that sounds... Okay, I'm in. I, I'll go give that a try. It might be terrible, but it sounds intriguing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I made a kind of a... Um, I did a riff uh, back in the... Was it maybe the late 90s, possibly? Or, or, or I... I the, the way they write these Sundance notes, everything sounds more or less the same juicy meal that you have to see because it's a real Sundance movie and it was yeah. chosen for these qualities. And can't you... I, I wrote a thing about, dude, where my, where's my car? And I wrote it like a Sundance thing. You can make any film sound that way. You can make any film sound quite inviting, intriguing. I gotta see it. This is definitely on my list. If you write it in the way that they write these uh, these uh, summaries, which are which are very consistently, they, it's like the same person writing the same thing about all these movies at the same time. So. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they do one of the best catalogs for the year in terms of getting every everybody hyped up about every movie. Okay. And um, really, I've learned at this point that uh, I will inevitably miss two or three things that everybody's talking about. Right. Uh, yeah. Most of the time, right. um, we have Dan Feinberg, our TV guy, is the guy who does all the documentary stuff for us, mm-hmm. and he gets first dibs on documentaries. Mm-hmm. I do Midnights, and I do a lot of the uh, the smaller, odder things. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have learned that I need to listen to Dan, because inevitably Dan will midway through the festival push a doc on me mm-hmm. that I may or may not get to, and then when I see it later in the year, I'm like, oh, I definitely should have seen uh-huh. that at the festival. Okay. So um, I think that's a good part about taking a team up is midway through the fest, we can start really comparing notes and uh, hopefully react yeah, based yeah. on what is still playing, what might still be playing. Right, right. Yeah. 
Hey, so what's going to happen, uh, just from uh, intuitively, what's your sense of things? Uh, what I love about this, um, not that this is, uh, I consider this uh, a vital issue to me personally, but, uh, you know, in the, in the currency of the, uh, the Oscar season, I, I love that there's no, and tell me if you agree, I love that there's no real big dog out there, and there's really uh, several uh, contingents for, for several films, and there's no big king speech uh, uh, dominant gorilla. Am I right? I would think for anybody who writes about the award season, that's that's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. The, uh, it's got to be awful once you've pretty much narrowed it down to two, and that's it. That's the narrative for two months. Precisely. That's why it's so glorious to get away and go to Sundance and get your flush it out of your head, but it's really kind of cool this year, so I don't know what's going to happen. What's your, what does your gut tell you as far as where it is now? I mean, obviously Zero Dark Thirty has taken hits. There's a certain portion of the Voting uh, Academy that's going to uh, instinctually just, you know, uh, push I it can't, away. since I don't cover yeah. uh, awards, and that's one of the deals that I made at Hit Fix up front is yeah. please don't ask me to do that because yeah. I, I don't like it. It's not my, my thing of the season. I try not to even write in reviews about Oscars or that kind of thing because I, I ultimately, um, I, I don't, I would be hypocritical. I don't watch the awards most years. I, but, in, I, but in your own heart of hearts, Drew, what would you... Uh, in my own heart of hearts, what I, what I think is, is, what I keep hearing over and over is that uh, the films that people are responding to this year, they're, they're very emotional responses. Okay. Um, you know, I know you've taken some, some hits for being so firmly on the side of Silver Linings Playbook. Yeah. I made my top ten for the year. And most people that I've spoken to who are active Academy members, who are voters, who are whatever, they love the fact that the film is an exquisite rendering of formula. Yeah. And I think there is some notion, and I think people forget this, the people who vote on the Oscars are Hollywood professionals. Mm -hmm. Many of them run variations on formula their whole career. Yeah. What they love and respect is when they see somebody do it in a way that makes it feel effortless and honest. There you go. And, That's exactly what that film does. You're, you've just said I, it very, I, very well. Yeah. It was the it was uh, last year. I saw uh, I saw it with Warrior. Yeah. A film that never quite caught fire uh, in terms of awards. I like that, that film. That was a good film. People so. who loved it, yeah. they loved it because, yes, they knew exactly where it was going from frame one. Yeah. But when it got there, it pays off the investment in a way that makes you feel uh -huh. rewarded by the formula, not abused by it. Uh -huh. That Silver Linings playbook is, boy, when they do that dance and they get their five, it's the, it's the simple celebratory victory of... Great, we we reached the middle, and I think there's something lovely about seeing that variation on the formula. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's one of those movies that I think has legs. People are discounting, and I think the emotional connection people make to it is stronger than the intellectual connection they make to something like Zero Dark or even Lincoln. Yeah. So uh, I had this reaction myself. This is I, I tend to feel things in response to uh, either either news events, whatever, and I, and, I, and I start to, I tell myself, because I feel it, other people are feeling the same thing. I saw two films in the Sundance Rundown, I read, read through all of them, that were about uh, sudden, random killings of, of no, uh, insane killings. Just, you know, there's a, there's a sniper from a car, and there's also a couple of, one kid kills another kid. After Newtown, I just said to myself, you know, fuck, I don't want to even go there. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to feel it. 
I feel like I've gone to the bottom of the slimy pit of, of the human soul with, with uh, Newtown and not just the, the, the monstrousness of the act, but the... Oh, the media reaction afterwards. The media reaction. Disturbing. Disturbing. Um, and the way that... You know, my dad's an NRA member, so we've been having this conversation back and forth now for about a week and a half. Uh, and even he, uh, seeing the NRA press conference the other day, was yeah. like, well, okay, never mind. Yeah. I, can't, I can't be on board with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think we've reached a place now where um, any conversation you have about it is just so emotionally difficult because we were really it, there's it's the cumulative impact all of it stacked on top of each other mm-hmm. and it really does seem like the media is getting more grotesque each time and it feels like we're you know I, I think to some extent caught in this constant cycle of it we never have time to recover before the next thing mm-hmm. and so yeah I, I think the idea of going and sitting in a theater and grappling over it for a couple hours mm-hmm. um, very little I would like less to do this January, and I think most people are going to feel that way. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So I think but that's just tough for the filmmakers. It's yeah, they may have made really smart, articulate films that that find some new way into the conversation, right. and even so, I still don't want to sit in the theater and, and deal with it. Yeah, yeah. As a wrap up, Drew, let me just do a quick thing about 2013 because uh, you you are uh, <clears throat> one of the more um, attuned. A, a journalist who who reads and or knows about the state of certain projects, and you've read a lot of scripts, and you're you're a screenwriter. Um, let me just run down some twenty. What I, I put together a list. Of what I believe, I suspect, based on recognition of the of the talent of the of the director. That's it's pretty much it. Uh, I got about thirteen, fourteen, actually sixteen films. Just quickly, uh, instant reaction. If you what you sense or what you feel might be the the value in this film. Okay, I'll just sure. go down one after another. Uh, John Wells is uh, August uh, Osage County. That's, yeah. uh, I'm certainly interested. The play is is a strong piece of material. It's a matter of uh, now just getting that really ephemeral. I, the one thing I'm curious about seeing them do is can they make it intimate in a way that the stage production is big because mm-hmm. they're, they're such different mediums and often great plays don't adapt as well as they could because they haven't cracked it. You know, Carnage last year being a good example for me where um, I don't know that they ever found a, a film language mm-hmm. that quite fit the material. Mm-hmm. I still think it's a fine piece of drama, but I don't know that it was a film. Uh-huh. And Osage definitely, they've got to find right. a way. Do you know that they, I they, thought, I yeah. thought naturally when it was shot that they would uh, use um, a soundstage and so they could break away and get different angles and wouldn't, wouldn't be bound by immovable walls. Do you know that they literally bought a house in Bartlesville, Oklahoma and uh, shot inside this house? That's how they did it. That's what Clooney told me at a party. So they're going to, it's, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be quite as, uh, as, 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 as movable a camera with as many angles. And so it's going to be, it's interesting that they made that choice. Let's, you know, forget the, uh, the setups that we could, could get in a soundstage. We're going to go with an actual house. So they must be. I just hope they make it intimate and I hope they make it authentic. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. You know anything about uh, uh, Payne's Nebraska? Have you read any, any, um, versions of it you don't have any idea what the story is <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's um Sorry. yeah i i liked what i read it's really small scale it is all just personal dynamics um and and very father-son it it feels like it fits right in the pain wheelhouse yeah um i like that he really pushed himself on casting and tried to find because uh, i know he, ca- he cast a wide net on this one especially for the sun like really 
looked at everybody. And I know several actors that went in to read for it, and I don't think he was uh, looking for the movie star. I think he was looking for a really Mm -hmm. interesting, emotionally dynamic connection between these two people. And And uh, my guess is that if he hadn't found it, he wouldn't have made it. Bruce Stern is the dad. Let's just be that clear on that, right? I'm sorry? Isn't Bruce Stern playing the dad? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, right. And it is in black and white. And it is yeah. essentially a road movie about going across a couple of states. I forget what the... Uh, it is. It's, it's, there's a road movie, and there's a reason for the road trip. And, mm-hmm. you know, to say much more, I think, kind of takes away the few cards he has to play. But it's, uh, it's very small-scale, very well-observed. I think it's a smart piece of writing. I can see why he flipped for it. And mm-hmm. I like that it's not his, that it's something he found and went, oh, i got to do that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it really resonated with him. So you don't know anybody who's read it themselves or has told you about it, or you haven't looked at it yourself either, right? Well, I have. Oh, you have? If you're interested, yeah, if you're interested, I can send it over. Oh, I'd love to. I'd really, really yeah, yeah. love to. Yes, thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, I've got it. Okay, all right. Uh, Gravity, I've heard uh, that, that that had a screening, actually. On that screenings are going great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've heard nothing but good, and as far as I'm uh, concerned, Quaron has earned faith, blind faith at this point. Yeah. I'm in. Uh, and it sounds like I, I just want to see the 30-minute the opening shot of the film where it's one unbroken shot. Yes, that, that in itself, that makes it an absolute landmark. I can't wait. Yeah, it's, it sounds like technically he's done something really ambitious, but I also hear that audiences who walk in who have no sense of who he is or what the technical side of it is, that people are walking out really satisfied with it as a movie. Okay. Because it does have a way out. I mean, it's not some existential. Well, how would you like to die? We're stuck up here. We have no oh, out. No, it's a. It's an out. really a uh, a movie with a right. an aggressive plot. So yeah. Okay. The other, uh, the next one is uh, there's a uh, what what sounds like a almost a remake of Frankenheimer's The Train called Monuments Men. I don't know that it has to do with a train per se, but it certainly has to do with uh, Nazis and and stealing uh, great works of art. And or, or rather, transporting them to Germany. Uh, you know anything about that? It's, uh, I've seen the cast go by, but no, I haven't. I haven't dug farther into it. Okay. Um, it's one of those that they're casting to as deep as they can, so they must have uh, some ambitions for it. And then Greengrass has a uh, Somali pirates uh, Tom Hanks movie called Captain Phillips. You, know, you heard anything about that? Uh, I've just heard the the bare bones that you just said, right. but uh, yeah, Greengrass, Somali pirates, Tom Hanks. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kidnapped. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Greengrass is one of those guys who, again, his process is so interesting that I guarantee it'll be worth the conversation, even if it doesn't quite come together as a film. All right. So, uh, have you read uh, Wolf of Wall Street? I read a version of it way, way back about Jordan. What's his last name? Belson. Bells. Bell, uh... Yeah, I haven't read it. And uh, you know, last time I saw Jonah, he was talking. It was on the set of the um, the Seth Rogen thing that Seth directed. And Jonah was like, "This is the last comedy I'm doing for a while." <laughs> uh, and it's just because that's after Moneyball. Now that's the stack that he's getting. Uh-huh. And um, yeah. it really it sounds like an interesting cast. I I really like the big Hollywood Scorsese who has evolved over the last decade, fifteen years, where. You know, it's funny when you look back at Color of Money now and you realize he was in the wilderness at that point and nobody would hire him. And that was basically like a last-ditch effort to prove I can make a movie that looks like your studio films. Please hire me. 
Um, and then you look at where he is now. Uh, you talk about a guy that really pulled it out of the fire through sheer raw talent and determinism. Um, yeah, well, that. But he, you ask me, his wilderness movies are 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 one of the among his best by far. I love After Hours. Last oh, I, I do of too. Christ there was a point where he was having trouble getting anything made. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, was, it's for me. I I love the fact that Scorsese rarely repeats himself. That mm-hmm. even when he right. uh, mixes it up, he is so clearly in there. I right. I don't understand a Scorsese fan who can love Goodfellas but not love Age of Innocence because to me the same intellect is behind the choices. The same social X-ray qualities of how he gets the details of things right. How he shows you the little things that add up to the way a world feels. Kundun is the same way. How can you like Scorsese and not appreciate how clearly his voice is represented in the things that are not his gangster safety zone movies? I can only say that there's a reason that David Chase wrote a scene in which um, Christopher Moltisante is uh, outside of a club and he sees a guy playing Scorsese and just to get his attention because he knows no one else has said it to him ever, probably, he goes, Marty! Kundun, I loved it. <laughs> uh, that's a movie I vociferously defend, and and I've never always been will. such torture as that. That that's one of the movies that I'll never forget for the way it made me feel. So. <laughs> All, right. All right. Anyway, so oh, by the way, does um, uh, Jonah Hill play uh, the law? Does he bust Leonardo DiCaprio in that film? Is that how it works? That I'm not sure, um, because, I, I, like I said, I haven't read it, but, uh, okay. but I am curious. I know it's a, a fairly large featured role, so... Right. I would guess that's probably it, because he... That would make sense. I would, I would, um, I would and it would be, and he, you know he could invest, obviously, uh, sympathy, and, and you'll, you won't hate him, and even, you, you, you're not necessarily going to be on DiCaprio's side, but he's, he's a charismatic enough actor that you'll probably feel... Uh, a certain kinship with him, even though he's going down. Oh, there's something great about those two playing opposite sides of something. You know, I, I can see how the envy and the uh, the distaste for this guy's life mm-hmm. would creep into Jonah if he was the guy hunting him down. Speaking of which, I can remember a, a thing that Pauline Kael wrote a long time about Paul Newman in his heyday and how he got away uh, very, uh, very, uh, very ably, very confidently by playing one of the, sh- one of the shitty- shittiest people, I think, that, uh, uh, that were seen throughout the entire decade of the 60s, which is HUD in the <laughs> red film. And yet yeah. people liked that film, particularly younger people liked that film, because he was Paul Newman playing him in that way that, you know, you just liked him, even though he was clearly a deplorable person. It oh, just yeah. didn't get, oh, yeah. you know. There are certain movie stars who, it doesn't matter what they do, the charisma carries them. You know, it's one of the things that I I think is so spectacular about uh, Mm -hmm. Tarantino's discovery of Waltz is realizing, I can put anything in this guy's mouth, and audiences are going to come out the other side happy with him. Yeah, yeah. They love, they just love listening to him. And for Quentin to find that guy, Mm -hmm. that's that's the dream. I'm sure he's just like, oh my God, the rest of my life, I'm just going to write things for him to say. It's just so good. Yeah. (laughs) Did you happen to read uh, Inside Lewin Davis? I did, and uh, and it's not it's not your typical Cohen film um, or typical Cohen script. It's it's much more direct than I expected. Um, I read it too. By I'm well. curious to see how they evoke the era because that's you know it's such a particular time and place that folk scene and kind of mm-hmm. it's before rock and roll. So it wasn't that. It wasn't the mania. It was 
it was much more lifestyle oriented in some ways, and, and people would give themselves over to it. So I, I want to see how, how they reproduce the community in the time. I've been saying over and over again, I wish they would please stop saying, based on Dave Van Ronk, they won't stop. But there's nothing in that character that I read on that page that told me Dave Van Ronk at all. This is a guy who is not, uh, he, is, he is, I think, a pretty good musician from what I could gather from the script. He knows yeah. the stuff, but he doesn't seem to really burn with it. Not the way... No, and I, I get the feeling that may have been where they started. They may have been reading about him, but it's really a, a larger portrait of a time and place, yeah. and this guy just being the the way into that. Yeah, yeah. I loved... I mean, I, after I, I said, this isn't really doing anything. It doesn't even have the, uh, you know, God hates you and wants to fuck with you uh, undercurrent of a, of, a, of a serious man. And yet, when it was over, I said, this is good. I, this is a real Coen Brothers movie. I'm going to be able to see this two, three times, just based upon it, because I haven't forgotten the script. I remember it vividly, and I could uh, yeah. really... No, it's got, it's got real meat on the bones. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing, is their writing is so good. I, mm-hmm. It's the real reason I'm, I'm bummed that uh, they finally made that Gambit remake that they wrote, because that was during that period where they thought they were getting out of films, and they were just taking remake, rewrite jobs. And they're going to really push it as the Coen brothers. I saw the European posters because it came out in London already. Uh-huh. And they were really pushing Coen brothers, Coen brothers. Yeah. It is so not theirs <laughs> okay. at all. all right. And uh, and I feel like they're really going to trade on their name. Yeah. Um, but it's anybody that walks into that one expecting them is going to be disappointed. Just to complete the story, because I'm, I'm really, I don't know how I missed all this, but what is it that triggered the uh, despondency that they felt and we're, maybe we're going to get out, maybe we're done? What, what is I, it, think, what I think they realized, and I, I think anybody that had read it, uh, and I don't know, have you read the To the White Sea script? No, I never read it. It's, it is one of the finest pieces of film writing I've ever read. It's magnificent. But it wasn't, you're saying that was it? It had nothing to do with the reception to other films that they had done? What, when was this happening? Well, I think it was hard for them. I think they had, they had felt like they were beating their heads against the wall to some extent. That mm-hmm. their, their films were, you know, Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing, movies that were huge conversations mm-hmm. when they were playing festivals or when they were uh, being spoken, by, spoken about by cineasts. They, those are big movies. Yeah. They were not big movies in terms of box office, okay. and they were finding it harder and harder to push that rock up the hill. Mm-hmm. And I think they thought, okay, we've got one of the biggest movie stars on the planet now, Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. We've got this script that everybody agrees is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's a responsible budget for a giant movie. Mm-hmm. This is the package that should push us over the top. Right. And I think for Warner to kill it when they did, mm-hmm. um, just took the wind out of their sails. And I think when you write something that good, when you have that many of the elements together, when it looks that right on paper and it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. you really start to question your place in the uh, the ecosystem. Okay. And uh, I, I think for them it was very, very hard. And you look at the rewrite jobs they took, they're all films that I can't even imagine them watching, much <laughs> less making. Um, you know, in, uh, Intolerable <laughs> and The Lady Killers and the, those projects don't feel to me at all like the Coen brothers. They feel like the Coen brothers saying, all right, well, this is what you want. Okay, fine, we can do that too. Mm. But there's no passion to it. There's no pulse to those movies. And it really wasn't until they got back to their voice again that that pulse returned. Mm. So I, I think it was just a case of giving up on the business, not the art. I think they've never given up on film as expression or, or art. Right. But it really looked like for a while Ethan was going to write short stories and Joel was just going to do things for hire and it yeah. just wasn't going to be them anymore. Right. 
Now, I just happened to uh, be walking out of the Arclight the other night, and a guy was saying, would you like to come to the screening? There's like a couple of them of uh, Jason Reitman's film, Labor Day. And <coughs> naturally, I don't want to even think about that, but I, don't, I happened to run into Reitman at a, at a party, and I said, you know, they're having a, a test screening of that. Uh, a guy, a guy uh, you know, randomly invited me to it. He says, you're not going to go, are you? No, 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 I'm just telling you. I understand that you're refining it now, and I guess I'll see it sometime around Toronto or something. Do you know anything about it at all? Uh, have a, any clue at all, just a logline, what it is? Uh, no, and I haven't read the book, um, but I know it's something that, uh, this was something he's been trying to make now for the last two films. Okay. Like, this has been simmering that entire time. Right. So it's going to be a real test, because this is material that I think Reitman has been very passionate about and has really stood his ground on and tried to get made. Yeah. And any time a filmmaker finally gets one of those made, yeah. we either get something special or we get something that makes you reassess him and step back and go, really? Yeah. That's what Six Years was about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I think for him it's kind of a moment, because uh, I still don't think we know Jason Reitman very well. Mm -hmm. It's so weird for me to say that, because I, when I worked at Dave's in the early 90s, his dad was one of our three best customers mm -hmm. and would come in for every Laserdisc. <laughs> he almost always had Jason with him. Mm -hmm. And Jason was just that kid, that 12-year-old kid that was with him and seemed yeah. bored by everything. Right. So it's weird yeah. now watching him as Hollywood director and powerhouse Jason Reitman. You're, I, I presume, referring, I don't want to get into this too heavily, but I, I assume you're referring to the way he kind of dissed his writing partner, the guy who was at least deserving of co-credit on the screenplay of, uh, why did I just blank on this? It was... Uh, up in the air. Up in the air, yeah. Is that what you're referring to when you say we don't really know him? Well, I, I think I think we don't know him because he's, he by growing up around the industry, he there was never a period where he was kind of struggling to get his film films made and defining himself movie by movie kind of away from a spotlight. He pretty much hit the ground running and working in the studio system. And like Max Landis, ultimately they will either rise or fall based on what they do. Sure. But that ladder in, that first step in, mm -hmm. is the moment where we get to know a lot of filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And with these guys, that step's kind of been removed, and they just show up fully formed, working in the system, here I am, yeah. because it's my birthright. Right. Yeah. And so, with Reitman, those films so far, not all of them have originated from him. He's taken books, he's used source material, he used yeah. Diablo's script. Mm. I don't know him. I know the movies he's made. Right. But I still don't know much about him and what's important to him. The fact that Labor Day is something that was important to him to get made and that he stuck with so, for so many years, I think thematically means we're going to see something of him reflected in this. This was important for him to make. Why? I really uh, like what she is doing, Diablo Cody. I, I read the one that she's going to uh, direct or has directed now, I guess. Is that is that already happened? I can't remember now. But um, she is at least creating female characters that I have not met before. And I think she, I, I, I love that she's... Um, she took a lot of heat for no good reason. Yeah. I, I think she just, she was a great whipping boy that year, and she's more interesting than that. She's a real writer. She's yeah. She's got a voice, and she's definitely, I think, trying to uh, yeah. refine what it is that she does. I, I am very curious to see where she goes. I, I do like her. Yeah. Okay, we already mentioned uh, Saving Mr. Banks, uh, did, and I know that Bennett Miller wanted to make Foxcatcher before he. In fact, he was try, he was working on that pretty uh, pretty heavily before uh, Moneyball came along, and then of course yeah. he took it when the Soderbergh left the project. 
you know anything about it at all? I've never even, I've never read it, nothing. And, and I do know him somewhat. I guess I could. No, uh, and same thing. I'm, I'm curious yeah. because I know it's important to him. Right. Um, a lot of times with films like that, when, when I, I know that it's something somebody's really been trying to get made, that yeah. it's like a priority to them, I try to stay as hands-off as possible just because I am curious to see the final product right. uh, and, and walk in kind of clean. Mm. So with that one, I look, Bennett is certainly a guy who... Uh, Two films in, interesting guy, smart guy, right. very obviously smart. So, what what's important to him? Mm. Now, do you uh, have you? What is your impression now that we've seen an extended trailer? I saw uh, footage for The Great Gatsby at CinemaCon last April. What is your? Yeah. Did you see that? Also? It's been it's been a tough production. They've had a hard time. You know, for DiCaprio, last year was the year of incredibly difficult productions. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear Gatsby ran very long. Yeah. And then we know Django ran very long. And I think he was a little nuts by the end of the two of them back to back. I heard, by the way, they didn't they didn't get along too well at a certain point. You know, I, I've heard that too, and, and I don't know how much is just the year that Leo was having. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how much is just he and Tarantino aren't really simpatico. But mm. yeah, I hear it was tough, and I hear Gatsby. The post production has been a nightmare. It has been a really difficult process. And uh, they've they've done additional photography, and they've thrown more money at it, and they're they're hoping, like they really hope. Uh, Gatsby's a tough nut to crack, though. Mm-hmm. Gatsby's an internal book. You look back at Jack Clayton's film; it's a pretty stiff. There's nothing going on in that movie. It's pretty. <laughs> You're right. That that is like, um, you know, what I need to do. I think I need to watch it again. It's been a long time. Uh, but when did you last see it? This is the Jack Clayton version. With the- yeah, it's probably been about. 12 years now uh, and at the time I was I, I was fascinated by unadaptable books or by books that were right. elusive mm-hmm. and Gatsby remains elusive because so much of it is about the language so much of it is not what F. Scott Fitzgerald is writing about it's how he wrote about it and it's how he evoked a world and a place um, which is tough to do on film I will say that if there's any filmmaker who's up to the task of creating a completely impressionistic world around a central character mm-hmm. It's Lorman. And if he can get us into the feeling of the jazz age, I don't even care if it's 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. If it's emotionally accurate, if it feels like that dangerous time when things were changing and evolving, and if he gets the decadence of it right and the opulence and the phony something going on behind it, That could be enough, right. but that's really that's all down to how well he builds that world. Mm. Certainly, it's going to be visually dynamic. That trailer is something else. Given what our culture was in the 1920s, much more, uh, <clears throat> much more of a, uh, of a white guy culture than it is now. This is obviously we're living in a multicultural era. It was utterly not multi- multicultural in the 20s. Why did he use an Indian actor to play? Essentially, it was a Meyer Lansky. You know, why do you think he did that for us? My guess, my first guess, and this is kind of a cynical guess, but my first guess is because that guy's huge international box office. <laughs> okay. Right. That, that, and that might literally be it. It might be I'm making a hundred-plus million-dollar Great Gatsby, which is mm-hmm. batshit crazy money to spend on that film. But if I'm going to do that, mm-hmm. I've got to guarantee it opens in more than just the U.S. It's got to be international. And that guy really does have a gargantuan following in Asia. Not as a as a as, as as what is it? Tell me a little bit about him, if you would. Is he is he? Uh, have you seen him in other films? Have you seen? I don't. I know him by reputation only. <laughs> I'm, I'm. If you were to ask me what my one greatest failing is in terms of being a film viewer is yeah. at Bollywood, right. I've seen very very little of it. Yeah. But I'm aware. 
aware of it, and I certainly I'm fascinated by the idea that there's a parallel Hollywood going on that is making billions of dollars every year that we don't see at all, mm-hmm. right. that almost never gets exported. And uh, that guy is one of those cases where he's a huge movie star in parts of the world and in our country, mm-hmm. unknown, largely unknown. And I find that fascinating that you can be that mm-hmm. in a modern media age where it feels like we all share the same film culture. Uh, it's a it's a very firm reminder that that's not really true. Mm. So how do you deal with the uh, with as, as I was writing about uh, recently about that that sudden you know jerk to a halt feeling of everything stopping and suddenly it's just empty streets and you go get a cup of coffee and then your in laws and it's like. Where, how, what happened to the world I've been living in constantly, day after day? You sort of become a sort of a uh, internet junkie, an energy, you know, just the, the challenge of writing all the time. And it all kind of slows down. It's like, wow, I don't know how to do this. You know, it's like feels funny. And I, and I oh, this time of year? Yeah, the, the Christmas doldrums. The, the, you know. Yeah, it's the it's the one time of year. The the nice part for me because I do write so often and I I do spend so much time doing this and I'm out of the house so much. Um, the nice part is that I can just hang out with the kids and have a couple of days to breathe. Um, and knowing that Sundance is right around the corner and it's right back into 2013, so I, I kind of I, I kind of love this brief respite. But uh, but yeah, it's really weird because you you see it automatically. You you know for sure when the holiday season has begun in this town because it's suddenly silent. <laughs> I'm not getting any calls. I'm not talking to people during the day. I'm not tracking things. There's just nothing happening. No one's here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I, well, I just figure it's a good time to catch up on those screeners that I can't make myself watch. Uh, i got to admit, uh, I haven't been able to just pop in Quartet. What's wrong with that? I don't have the... Uh, Quartet's sitting at the, the bottom of my stack as well. Yeah. And uh, I look at it, and every single time I pick it up to put it in, I'm like, yeah, but I could watch this instead. <laughs> <laughs> it's never good, and I feel bad for for the filmmaker. I don't mean to be that guy, but yeah, yeah. it happens. Uh, I'm going to get past it somehow. And I want to just tell you the closing thing that I just got in the mail out of the blue. I didn't know where it, it didn't expect it, but I saw the Duelist uh, on Blu-ray, and it's wonderful, really wonderful. I you know? I bet that is that's one of those movies that I'm hoping that now that Ridley Scott is Ridley Scott, I'm hoping there's a lot of film fans who don't even know that movie exists, who have never seen it, who go back now and catch up and go, oh my god, look at this thing. Yeah, it's That really is such a modern movie in terms of attitude, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. classically, classically beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it really makes you feel almost like it's damp inside your place as you're watching it. The fog, the the, the moisture, the outdoor, the, use, the light is just magnificent in, in ways I can't even describe. So one of the reasons that Ridley Scott is Ridley Scott is that he started late. No no 20-year-old would have made that film. Yeah. The fact that he was already well into his 30s before he made his first feature, right. I think, informs his entire career. Mm-hmm. He's always come at it as an adult. He's right. always come at it as a guy who had already had a rigorous intellectual life and who already had an artistic aesthetic established before he ever stepped foot on a film set. Mm-hmm. So, right. Right. Okay. yeah, it, it definitely, that that's one of those first First movies that you look at and you're like, I can't believe that's a first movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Uh, you're very articulate. It's great talking to you. Uh, uh, it's Talk- very relaxing because all I have to do is give you one question. You go on for like eight minutes in a brilliant way. So I, I hats off. <laughs> Have a great holiday. Enjoy yeah. your Christmas, yeah. and uh, we'll talk, I'm sure, after the new year and uh, before Sunday. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Be well.